Geek News Reviews, Commentary, not just another podcast, on the Ordinary People Broadcast. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a space ship in Washington. The Army has taken every precaution to meet any emergency which may develop. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Now here comes your host, Kyle A. Barrett of the World Steve. Welcome to the Big Ball Broadcast, all the geeky news you can use. This is episode 41. Hi, my name's Kyle A. I'm a voice actor from anime and video games. And your co-host on the East Coast, Otherworld Steve, and I'm a historian. A lot of people love Halloween. I know I love Halloween. I love that whole season. I know that you embrace the whole horror movie aspect. I don't know if you're a Halloween fan, but I know that you're all about the horror movie stuff. You know, classic vintage B-movie shit. For me, it's about the whole month of October. I, that that one day payoff, it's, it's not worth it. And this year, I've already broken my rule. And my rule's been three years in a row now is during the entire month of October to watch as many awful 1950s B-movies as possible. And this year I get a little overexcited with the thought. So I actually started last week. So I'm already about 50 movies in for, for this year, for this month. And I wasn't kidding last episode when I said, I think I pretty much exclusively only listened to The Misfits during the month of October. Oh, well, that's appropriate. Because a lot of their titles were inspired by those movies. And you know their songs are better in some cases than the movies themselves. Well, yeah, and if you're if you're watching those movies, uh, yeah, you'd be hard pressed to go that it's like it doesn't take much more. I, I could take a shit that's probably more entertaining than than some of these films. But some of them are really good. Uh, before we started recording, we we're talking about War of the Colossal Beast, which is actually a sequel, even though it was never advertised in the fifties as such. But it's a sequel to The Amazing Colossal Man, which uh, you were speaking very fondly of. Yeah, yeah, I remember seeing that. My local ABC affiliate in the middle of the night, like 4 a.m., would just show old movies. Sometimes it would be like Monster Week. So you get all the kaiju Godzilla stuff. And then other times it would just be like B movies from hell. And it's like Amazing Colossal Man. And I remember my dad coming in, seeing it, going, Oh, I saw this at the drive in when I was a kid. It's like, Oh, well, that's cool. And then I'm watching it, but I'm a kid myself. And then I grow up and then I see it uh, on Mystery Science Theater 3000. That's like my, my favorite episode of that. And <laughs> this is where Steve and I <laughs> differ on the the comedic value of MST3K. Yeah, because well, I don't know. I, it's not that because I'm a huge fan of like DBZ abridged. That's fucking hilarious. But I think you have to have context. I think if you're going to watch abridged, you have to watch Dragon Ball Z in its entirety first, and, and not Kai. That's cheating. You got to watch all 291 episodes. But I think the same applies for these movies. I, I don't think. Uh, if your first experience with one of these films is watching it get riffed, it's kind of hard to go back and watch it later and, and take it in for what it is. Uh, like I said, I, the last installment of the Creature of the Black Lagoon series, The Creature Walks Among Us, um, that really touched me. You know, I'm like, men don't cry, but you know, oh, I, excuse me, I got something in my eye here because that, that was really touching. And, and there's some decent movies. Some of the ones I thought would be stinkers are actually pretty good. And the ones that I thought would be pretty good, particularly the ones in the early 50s that are actually shot in color, um, they're just boring as fuck. So that they're bad movies. They're just boring. <laughs> I mean, there's a handful of movies that I, I still think hold up really well. I think the original Fly, uh, Vincent Price was like top build on that, but he's not the main character by any means. It's almost a, a cameo, but I can see why they would have him be uh, 
he's a marquee name, you know, get people in there to check it out. I, I still think it's a, yeah, it's cheesy, but it's also creepy at the same time. It works. It, it holds up. I think, uh, I'm still in love with, you know, creature, of the black lagoon, uh, them, the giant ants attacking everything. That was, that was a fun one. Um, and plan nine from outer space, of course, you know, holds a great place in both our hearts. The, the late great Ed Wood. And speaking of Ed Wood, that's actually how I kicked off this year. Um, I watched Bride of the Monster and then the Ghouls back to back. Um, they're actually pre, uh, sequels. Well, Bride of the Monster. Bride of the Ghouls is a sequel to Bride of the Monster. It's hard to keep all this stuff in, in, uh, in check. Actually, technically, I guess it's a trilogy if you're really into Ed Wood films because you have Kelton the Cop. So at least it takes place in the same universe. So Kelton, I believe, is also in Plan 9. So we have a trilogy of Ed Wood films. Um, I will say this. Uh, to date, I've watched 71 of these horrible B-movies. And I kind of have to agree that Ed Wood probably had the lowest budget of all of these. Now, I'm wondering if MST3K ever riffed Plan 9 from Outer Space. And if they did... Um my interest level would be none because I cherish that movie so bad, so, so much that I can't imagine, um, yeah. walk, watching it through another pair of eyes, I guess. I'll tell you what totally destroyed my experience with Bride of the Monster was having seen uh, Tim Burton's Ed Wood movie. And before I go any further, I need to say, I love that movie. That was a great movie. And, and uh, it was shot in black and white at great risk. And I, I think it was just done so beautifully in Orlando as uh Lugosi. But, you know, you realize at that end of his career, towards the end of his life, Lugosi was what you would call a junkie. And, and for whatever reason, you know, it was, he was uh, injecting drugs into his veins and getting really fucked up. And when I watched Bride of the Monster, only because they make such a big deal in Ed Wood about the octopus, um, I, I watch it and I just I think of poor Lugosi and, and I get really sad. I, I stop enjoying the film and I'm like, ah, oh, fuck, what happened to Lugosi? Yeah, you go to Dracula, 1931. He is like a huge box office star and then, you know, he appears in sequels and then Abbott and Costello movies and then it's almost a farce it's at some point and then, you know, as what happens to a lot of uh, celebrities at some point, it's like, no one seems to care anymore. And, uh, you know, he was older. He had failing health issues. And uh, then he had a, a, a sad addiction to morphine, is my understanding. And then, you know, he's shooting Plan 9 from Outer Space. He passes away. They end up, you know, the director just hires, what, his wife's chiropractor or something to stand in for him and just hold the cape over his head. So you could tell it's obviously not Bela Lugosi. It's so low budget and terrible. The whole story of Plan 9 is such a great story, and uh, there's this great documentary that comes with the film box set. I purchased mine on Amazon for like 30 bucks years ago, and I think it's a, it's a real good collection for that money. But the documentary gets into some of these details. I think it was a Baptist church that Ed Wood essentially conned into putting up the production money for Plan 9. And the, the name was changed because it, it was a Plan 9 from Outer Space originally. Um, do you remember what it was? out of space yes and and the church thought that put it too far and actually some of the people you see in that movie are members of that church that put up the funding for this film <laughs> that that's pretty wild and uh i guess edward met 
uh, Bella Lugosi at some point and just said, Hey, want to be in our movie? And he's like, yes, I'd love to be in your movie. I'm doing nothing with my life right now. And there was a lot of shit behind the scenes because, uh, a lot of other powerful people in Hollywood felt that Wood was just taking advantage of Lugosi trying to get some marquee billing for his horrible films. But I would like to believe anyway, especially after seeing Burton's Ed Wood, that they had a genuine friendship. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that was a really touching element of that, of that thing, you know, and Martin Landau, who, who's also, you know, he, he passed away just a few years ago, but it's like, Oh yes, let's shoot this fucker. It was great. It's like, pulls the strings. Lo- love that performance. And another great Johnny Depp um, role as well. Uh, I want to refer to Jez Oldfield in our chat room. Now, you guys listening or maybe new listeners, we do a live audio stream on Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. You can actually join a chat room and uh, hear our live audio stream on otakulife.net slash KyleTV, uh, believe it or not. And we have the links that on our Twitter, at BB Broadcast, when we go live. So that's all you really need to remember, at BB Broadcast. Um and we do that, and uh, our, 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 we've got some some chat regulars, as it were. Uh, Jez says, have you seen the Spanish version of Dracula, which was filmed on the same sets at night when Universal staff went home? I actually haven't, because I don't know a lick of Spanish, but I know that it was uh, it was very acclaimed, and it is an extra on the Universal Dracula, he, he makes the point of saying. And yeah, yeah, it's, uh, you know, for those who are interested, they can, they can check that out, and, you know, it, it's an interesting bit of film history there to, to have a, a bilingual version of that uh, using the same exact sets. And again, you know, uh, with Universal's early monster movies, the, the original Dracula and Frankenstein and the Mummy and the Wolfman, they, they're just so well done. And don't discount them because they're old. I think if you sat down and, and really watched them, you'd appreciate the fuck out of the beginning of, of these iconic characters. Right. And, you know, we're talking about enjoying old-time horror films. Safeguard in our chat says, how do y'all feel about old-time radio horror shows? You know, radio was, you know, uh, kind of the internet, <laughs> what the internet is today. It's like, that's what that's what everyone's connection to the entertainment world, to, to, to breaking news, to everything. People just gathering around and, you know, the whole theater of the mind thing, you know, that, that concept was something that kind of sparked my interest in becoming a voice actor. Uh, ever since I was little, listening to War of the Worlds, listening to The Shadow, uh, and absolutely, there's, there's sci-fi themed ones, there's soap operas, there's horror themed ones, um, all this stuff. And a lot of radio's biggest stars moved on to being big screen stars. Yeah, I believe uh, Lucille Ball got her start in radio and then transitioned to film and, and television. Uh, yeah, certainly Orson Welles and his whole Mercury Theater of the Air, you know, his whole troupe, you know, were featured in Citizen Kane. What I think the most about old radio is that these individuals pioneered fully. They started this whole art of providing those other sounds that are associated with the stories you hear. Uh, not too long ago, I was at a convention somebody had mentioned something that I don't think we keep in the forefront of our mind when you're watching a cartoon, when you're watching anime, every single sound you hear somebody put in there, none of that is ambient. None of that exists. So everything you hear, somebody had to put that in there. Um, and, and when you apply it to radio, it's like, fuck, I mean, these guys created that, that, that form of escapism and that depth. Uh, and that I think is what I appreciate the most out of old radio. 
Right. Yeah. There's no do-overs. So if you, you miss a line and flub them and you can hear them, it, nothing is perfect. You can hear it's in your old radio shows where people kind of stumble on lines and stuff, but I never heard any bad Foley or anything like that. It's like, okay, now it's easy to, to, to make a radio drama in the internet age. You just make it on demand. You don't do it live. You just, uh, you know, post produce it with, with, you know, cherry picked sound effects and everything and make it sound slick. If you really want to get a good story across, it's probably the preferred way to do it. Yeah, Safeguard in our chat says, some guy goes to a room with a shotgun mic and starts breaking shit. That's his job. Foley artist. What a gig. It's like, yeah, that's kind of the evolution of what uh, the sound effects guys on old radio kind of became because they were, I, I guess, I'm, I'm assuming they were having to do that for film anyway because film was there before TV. And then, you know, nowadays... Yeah, it's pretty fascinating. If, if you look, watch any behind-the-scenes stuff with Foley artists, and it's pretty interesting to learn sound mixing, sound design, all the different things that go into um, making every subtle tweak. You know, someone's leather jacket crinkling, just barely mixed into the conversation and all that. But all those things add that hint of reality to it. it it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And I forget his name at the moment, but the sound engineer for the original Star Wars films Oh yeah, Ben Burt. Ben Burt. His his work is phenomenal. He seems really smug, but you know what? Have you watched Star Wars? You deserve to be smug because what a fantastic job creating sounds that don't exist, sounds you haven't heard before, lightsabers, aren't you need to, everything like that. And some of the documentaries, to see him in real time doing the lightsaber sound for Empire Strikes Back, that's something just to behold it's like holy fuck they recorded this in real time and he was trying to sync it up kind of like what a dub actor would do with japanese animation we we got we actually do have some geeky news here uh it's pretty interesting we, we want to uh acknowledge uh awful reader who uh tweeted at us i uh, wanted to get a uh, our take on the whole possible strike of the voice actors in the uh screen actors guild and aftra which are now two unions merged into one sag aftra have the whole strike possibility because of these um, ludicrous demands on, on the behalf of the uh, video game industry saying, you know, things like we can fine the actors, you know, $2,500 for being inattentive during a session or showing up late, or we can uh, get your agency's franchise with the union revoked and fine you hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, if you don't submit enough actors to do background voices on all these games, because a lot of AAA games, whether they're union or non, uh, feature, you know, it's a cast of hundreds, you know, sometimes uh, even a thousands and, you know, budgets and everything. Um, this becomes a, a, a plight where uh, the membership of the union was basically asked, if we had to strike, would the membership be behind that? And uh, as of the recording of this podcast, this was the last day you could actually vote, assuming you are a SAG-AFTRA paid-up member. Uh, so if you're in the union, unfortunately, it was not open to the public. It's not like a petition sort of thing, um, because all that stuff's behind closed doors. But, you know, for months, the new video game contract, every voiceover contract, uh, comes up for negotiation every two years or so. Uh, and, of course, yeah, the issue of pay always comes up. But it's more about working conditions uh, and... Basically, a lot of the voice acting community on the union side were pushing for, hey, if you've got a AAA title and it makes $2 million, why don't you throw us, you know, and fill in the buzzword of the week? It could be considered a bonus payment or a residual. 
it's honestly just an extra session fee. Just kick back to the voice actors uh, for a slice of the pie. And the industry said, no way, we're not doing that. Um, and the developer side and the programmer side are, are quick to say things like, hey, we worked on this title for four years. You guys come and work on it one day or a few weeks and you want a piece of the pie? How come we don't get a piece of the pie? And so everyone's just, just you know, uh, it's very political. It's ugly and all that. It's not, um, as of the recording of this podcast, a strike has not been authorized yet. Um, but it seems like when you ha- have horrible working conditions being uh, forced upon the negotiations in the contracts, they, you, there really is no, you're kind of backed into a corner. So that's kind of, kind of where it's at. Now, as far as my opinion goes about it, and this, I can't speak for everyone else. I am not on board with, with what these demands are saying. And um, if, if, if that's the, the last possible straw to, to get through to the, the, the industry, the big studios that put out these games, uh, then yeah, you, you gotta get people's attention. And it does get, it's gotten a lot of media and you had Hollywood reporter, you had variety, a lot of people that don't normally cover the voice acting stuff or the voice acting industry stuff. It's gotten a lot of attention, including hashtag movements, you know, performance matters, hashtags, you know, I am on board, you know, it became a trending topic on Twitter and social media. So it looks like, um, you know, if it came down to it and again, as of this recording, it's nothing's happening yet, but it, it, it would seem to me that a lot of the membership, not all, a lot of the membership thinks that uh, a strike uh, is the only way to, to, to help take this to the next level because otherwise it's stunted. There'll be no new interactive contract, which has needed to happen ever since December of last year. We're just kind of, you know, floating right now. I think both sides are being ridiculously difficult. And I, I don't know if that's by design where, okay, we're going to put this up there and then the other side doesn't agree. It says, okay, well, we can go that ludicrous <laughs> and then some, and then the other side matches. Um, I think there are, are things that are difficult to quantify to me, an outsider, and, and maybe you can shed some light on it. But one particular thing that stands out with me is um, the whole damage risk assessment about if you're going to go into a role and there's the possibility you're going to really fuck up your voice, um, do you get like a hazardous duty pay for that? But what quantifies what would fuck up your voice? Well, I mean, uh, if you catch a cold or whatnot, uh, some things are just beyond your control, or you're sitting there blowing your voice out and during video game sessions um, at another studio, and then you report the next day because this is your life as a freelancer. You have to go from gig to gig. And if your voice is totally shot because of four-hour sessions screaming at the top of your lungs, that becomes a problem because that's the tool of our trade. If we can't even talk, if we can't, you know, show up to a session, we're holding up production. And when we risk the, the possibility of being recast, then we're out of job. You know, and I'm just strictly playing devil's advocate here. I have nothing the voice acting industry i just there were some things that are just kind of weird you know um but if you can't go to a session because you blew out your voice because we're working with another company how is it the studio that hired you how are they responsible for that they're hiring somebody to come in and, and do their job 
they're not really too, too concerned if you were doing a session yesterday and it wasn't a trying on your vocal cords. No, no. They just expect a professional to show up who's really good at their job, who gives, you know, minimum number of takes and, and, and all that. So, yeah, you don't want to be uh, like right now they can have up to a four hour session. And, and some of the games do require nothing but screaming at the top of your lungs. And that can be damaging. If you don't take care of it, you don't drink enough hot tea and during the during the session and and whatnot. It's like you're trying to get people to meet in the middle. Um, and, you know, coming back to the, the whole pay thing, it's like, well, the developers and the programmers, they work on these games. They're under contract, too, and they don't get a piece of the pie after it sells. You know, Call of Duty sells millions and millions and millions of dollars worth. And, you know, there's CEO bonuses and stuff, but no one else gets any, any piece of the back end. If you're in the union, you get a residual if you're on a cartoon uh, that airs on TV or if you're in a movie, once it's on video, then you get residuals and all that. But residuals are um, not part of the streaming media contract and they are not part of the anime uh, contract and they're not part of the or the, the dubbing, foreign dubbing contract. It's not an anime contract, but it falls under the same type of work. And there's not one for interactive or video game. In the union speak, interactive refers to video game. Um, but yeah, I read a really interesting article saying it's like, well, the reason developers and programmers and everybody working on these games haven't gotten a slice of the pie is because no one's ever tried to unionize them. And I mean that in a way where they try to stand up for themselves and say, hey, why can't we get a piece of the pie? I've read a lot about that, and, and I agree. And a lot of people have put it out there that if you're going to rectify this problem, the developers need a contract first, a unionized contract. Um, but the big problem with them is kind of the same problem that voice actors have, where your work for hire, they're kind of in the same boat, where you might have a developer working with one team at one studio, and then six months later, he's working with another team in another studio. And um, when you have a lot of cross-studio stuff like that, and, and people's capacities may vary from project to project, that gets a little bit more difficult to kind of narrow down the conditions of a contract. What the actors and the union membership and the, and the heads of that and the, on the negotiating committee, it's not about asking for a rise in the pay rate or anything like that. They want to you know, cut down the sessions from four hours to two hours if you're going to be screaming at the top of your lungs so that you can save your voice. Um, they want, you know, things like that that will that protect the actors. And in terms of money, they're talking about a back-end session. Uh, you know, yeah, it sells X number of, uh, once it hits a certain uh, sales benchmark, then the cast would be eligible to receive a residual or bonus payment equivalent to the day session rate, which in the union is roughly between eight or $900. And then of course you got to factor in your agency fees and taxes and all that stuff too. Uh, so yeah, that's a day rate and you're saying, Hey, I'd love to make eight or $900 in a four hour gig. But if you were consistently cast on things um, that require a lot of screaming and almost all games require a lot of screaming. Yeah. You could sit there and say, well, you know, I'm not going to do that. And say, all right, that's fine. They'll respect that. They just won't hire you again. And then suddenly you're not working anymore. Again, I think right now both sides is being unreasonable. I'm surprised um, it hasn't gone to arbitration yet, but I guess you have to wait until a strike is finalized before you can do that. Yeah, and there's a media blackout, so they can't comment. But, but this is seems kind of an unprecedented deal where you've had 
social media with the ha- the hashtag awareness thing. And a lot of people, there's a lot of misinformation out there too. A lot of people saying, this performance matters. Uh, voice actors deserve, you know, credit and they don't deserve it. It's like, well, it's not about that. You know, it's <laughs> maybe the hashtag thing, but it is awareness. So if you do just a little bit of research, there's tons of articles, tons of bloggers, uh, even people that have been asked about this thing, like myself or other people that work in the industry pertaining to this particular uh, union contract strikes, you know, they happen. That's the reason reality TV exists is because of the writer strike years ago. And this whole subgenre was birthed or aborted into reality. You know, whatever you think about it, it, um, the networks had their hands tied. They had people that would not show up. So they had to get programming content out there and they found a little loophole. They said, all right, well, we can just put Joe Q citizen on the show. They're willing to get the exposure because, Hey, mom, I'm on TV. And then, then these shows are done for, you know, next to nothing. They have zero budgets and people aren't getting paid their worth. Um, you know, the people, the crew, the, you know, all sorts of shit. So, you know, what would happen as the, uh, consequence of, uh, a voiceover strike? That's a very, very interesting question. Reruns. <laughs> lots and lots and lots of reruns. <laughs> well, lots of reruns in the TV realm, but I mean, in terms of games, and they, yeah, they'll just hire non-union talent or whatever. I mean, someone's got to do the job, so they're going to hire whoever is willing to do the job. And in the end, the job still gets done and the game still comes out. But will the quality still be retained? Uh, that's, <laughs> everyone's a critic, right? I mean, you could sit here and say, oh, it's no last of us, but it, yeah, it's kind of house of the dead too. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's stellar. Let me throw this out here again, just playing devil's advocate. And I, I don't know the answer to this, but um, do you perceive any fallout if the union does decide to strike and members of the union that are still involved in non-union work participate in that work? That's an interesting thing because of this whole social movement uh, a lot of the people on the committee have reached out to union and non-union talent because they're figuring, at least in the Los Angeles area, that eventually the non-union talent want to work on those AAA titles. They want to be part of a system that you can get residual payments and insurance coverage and pension and all this stuff that the union offers if you qualify and make enough money on union projects, blah, blah, blah. They're, they're, they're banking on the fact that the next generation of actors, whether they're voiceover or not, um, are going to eventually want to join the union. They're going to have to join the union in order to have access to even audition or be considered to be hired for certain projects, certain big studios, Warner Brothers, Disney, Nickelodeon, or some of the game studios, Sony and, and, and EA and, and whatnot. So, um, would the non-union people who aren't union yet actually kind of stand with with solidarity with the union people and also go on strike? Because I don't know. I would think that a lot of people that aren't in the union are just going to be like, Hey, you got to fend for yourself, man. I got bills to pay. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to work where I can. And, and that becomes the, the big, you know, tipping thing. Are people going to stand together or will it be undermined and kind of implode on itself? which, you know, has happened before. There's a lot of infighting and bickering and politics and all this shit. And at the end of the day, everyone just, we just want to work, man. We saw that exact situation take place when the Simpsons uh, couldn't finalize their contracts. And you had two fields of voice actors out there. And some said, yeah, uh, if my agent gives me that call, I'm going to go and I'm going to audition. Why the fuck wouldn't I? 
and you had a lot who pre- preemptively said, "Don't, don't fucking scab, and don't, don't let us catch you scabbing because there'll be consequences." What do you guys think? At BB Broadcast, the Big Ball Broadcast at gmail.com or Big Ball Broadcast at gmail.com. You can leave the the off if you want to. We want to know what you guys think. Are there any actors out there who, who record on video games? What's your take? Are you non-union? Are you union? Does it matter? Do you, you want to chime in on this? Should the, should the union vote to strike, uh, so that, uh, this, they can get past this, 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 uh, stalemate between the acting union and the video game industry. You know, the video game industry makes millions and millions and millions of dollars. It's pretty much the new Hollywood. The interactive contract is is what it is. And uh, they have, they have you know, drawn their line in the dirt saying, no, we refuse. No residual payment, no bonus payments, no nothing. In fact, here's our, uh, you know, things and all that. Who's going to sit there and uh, determine whether an actor is attentive enough at their session they say, well, yeah, they could pull out their cell phone and tweet and play on Facebook and not pay attention to their job. It's like, well, <laughs> okay, who's going to randomly decide what is considered inattentive? Well, I would imagine if that became part of a contract, they'd have to certainly clarify and, and have stipulations. Yeah, yeah, and, and all this shit takes months, if not years, to, to dread through and, you know, the strike didn't last for months and months and months when it came to TV. So if it happened in the VO world, yeah, it'd be interesting. It'd be like all the games would just go non-union. But, you know, it's a very tenuous sort of relationship where the studios have with the union. Um, A lot of the union membership, you know, they they only do the, the, the union stuff. And if you want access to certain actors and you want to have that, that, that tip of quality or that marquee name, then it's like you, you got to have your project be union. Uh, and if not, if quality doesn't matter, or if you don't need certain names or celebrities attached to it, um, then yeah, um, a lot of studios will go indie and do non-union and sometimes the, the rates better <laughs> in pay, which makes no sense, but and sometimes it's, it's way lower, but I mean, when you're non-union, you have no working conditions that can be protected. There's nothing to protect you. And so, you know, with all the politics in, in the union, whether it's a voiceover actor film union or any type of union, you know, I've heard arguments that are pretty valid on both sides as well. And strictly out of curiosity, I want our listeners to tweet us at BB broadcast. Um, does it matter to you who's providing the voice acting on a video game? Is that a make it or break it when you go out to, to make that purchase outside of uh, Mark Hamill in a Batman game, should I say, um, but is that a tipping factor on whether or not you decide to buy a game? Yeah, if you're going to have Kevin Spacey be not only voiced but also motion captured into the game, but yet his name's not even on the on the box art, does anyone buy Call of Duty because of the celeb voice work or the motion capture of that? I, last time I checked, people just want to play games that are well-designed. And yeah, the acting part, is a part of, of building that reality and the, and the realism and, and immersing you in the story. It's a, it's a factor, but you know, having the whole, you know, celeb thing, it's like, shouldn't your budget be put to better use? You know, one thing I find really interesting and, and this is fucked up for the voice actors is that when you audition for a role, you're not told when you're auditioning, whether or not that role requires mocap. 
And I thought that was kind of fucked. I think you got to be upfront about something with that because you're taking that performance to an entirely different level at that point. Right. And that's another uh, point of contention on this negotiation and possibility of strike is, you know, the voiceover people that are also now doing motion capture for a lot of these games, there's no stunt coordinator on set to, you know, ensure the safety as, as if it were a live action film shoot. You have that. That's just something basic. You know, the production company needs to, to cover that cost and to, to ensure the safety of the actors. Uh, you can't just cut corners here. And I think, again, you know, you're kind of taking it beyond just lending that voice. To a certain extent, you're using that actor's likeness as well. So I think you deserve that different pay grade at that point. Right. And that's kind of been the standard. Everyone makes, you know, either another session fee or just a different rate altogether for doing motion capture. For those who don't understand what motion capture is, it's basically people that wear the skin-tight black suits with little balls of light on there. Uh, their performance is videotaped and scanned into the computer, much like you know James Cameron's Avatar is like the most cutting-edge technology that was utilized for motion capture. But a lot of today's games, uh, that that's where that that realistic quality comes into the character design because actors actually did those movements. They were recorded, scanned into the computer, and now a lot of times the actual visual elements of those actors themselves are getting used. So does it become, it's like, well, yeah, we're going to, we're going to utilize, you know, Troy Baker, uh, but you know, for his great acting and everything, but we're also going to use his image on that. He's going to be on the box art of infamous second son. He is that character. Literally. Does he get a piece of that pie? And in that case, that's where I agree with the actors and say definitely because now you're banking on that. Exactly. So at BB broadcast, Give us your take on this. By the time you hear this, there may be some new developments. Maybe the strike will get authorized. Maybe it won't. Maybe uh, the the subcommittee negotiations with the industry will take a new turn because of the media push, the social media uh, push, and the, the hashtag awareness and all that of, of just Joe Q citizen and every you know everyday game players. Sure, there's 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 a ton of contingency in, in fandom that don't give two shits about this. And it's like, why do I give a fuck, man? I just want to play a game. But it's, it's pretty interesting out there if you pay attention to, to what's going on behind the scenes. Um, also uh, interesting, another one of our listeners, Aaron Jackson, submitted a story. You guys can do the same, too, by the way. Bigballbroadcast at gmail.com. Thebigballbroadcast at gmail.com. Or at BB Broadcast. You can link us to a story that you'd like our take on. And uh, Steve, what, what, what did Aaron submit this week? This is really interesting. Um GameStop CEO Paul Rain sat down with Fortune, and he said that disc-based games will, quote, be around forever. He referenced a 50% decline in physical music sales and a 60% decline in physical movie sales, but said, even in a doomsday scenario, disc-based games will be around a long time. Um, You know, time for my shitty two cents. But I think this dude's fucking ludicrous. I think we're moving towards uh, a more and more digital format. Um, I thought this was pretty interesting, and it goes along with this, that anniversary date for Back to the Future is coming up, and everybody's really excited, going to have a a re-release theatrically of all three films. If you want to stream it on your smart device or your computer, you only have one option, and that's Amazon Prime. I thought that was interesting that Amazon snagged that contract to to provide that content. but it seems where we are moving in that direction. And I think absolutely with music and with film where people choose to buy digital copies of that or shit, pirate it. 
Um, I think it's only going to go for the entire course of the entertainment industry. Then at some point, we're going to be less reliant on physical media and you're going to be able to download this stuff. And of course, we've been talking about this for years and years, but I, I want to go with uh, Mr. Rain's argument that because of the decline in, in the physical music sales and the decline of physical movie sales, it's only natural you're going to see a decline in physical game sales. Um, and he's kind of using that argument for the opposite. I don't know how much longer these retail stores can sustain that model. You know, with the popularity of smartphones and people's you know, dependence on the cloud and digital download of this, that, and the other, you know, we're an on-demand society. There's just perks to, to not having to stand in line for a midnight launch. I know I sound like an old man, get off my yard and every, everything, but seriously, if you, if you don't have to leave the house to, to get that game and play it as soon as it's available, you just pre-order digitally and then it just downloads to it. Yeah, you're going to get a copy of the game that you can't ever sell back. And that's, you know, GameStop's whole thing is just making money again and again and again. Uh, while the game sellers, the game makers, you know, make that initial sale and that's it. So, you know, same thing with DVDs and CDs. Back through the days, you know, it just recycles and, you know, everyone has their, their stores they go to for that, that content. But now, um, yeah, with Netflix, you can, you can, you know, access things that look just as good as Blu-ray. Uh, the only thing they're lacking is some of the exclusive uh, behind-the-scenes featurettes. But if you don't give a shit about those and you just want to watch the show or the movie, you can get the same quality streaming on on Netflix nowadays. And, you know, same sort of perks with the games. Digital downloads, just as good. You just have to have the hard drive space. And people are willing to, to fork over the money to have teradrive, terabyte hard drives added onto their consoles. Safeguard in the chat says, uh, software preloading, baby, it's the future. And I had to laugh because I was thinking I, I wouldn't put it past these uh, console developers to do something like that in the future because one of the, the biggest uh, problems people have with downloadable content is that the content's on the disk and you're paying for the privilege of unlocking that content on the disk you already purchased at full retail price. So I can imagine getting to a point where a console releases the next Xbox, the next PlayStation, and that drive might be preloaded with a hundred games. And then if you want to play them, you have to pay to unlock them. But yes, we do have that, that tech hiccup right now where when you buy a new system, you're limited with that initial hard drive space. And some people in some communities do have slower internet capabilities than some uh, bigger metropolitan uh, areas. So there is still that. And I think, I mean, we've seen it all progressively where the internet's gotten faster, hard drives have gotten smaller, they've gotten cheaper. Um, I remember when megabytes was a big deal. Oh, I can't go over five megabytes. It's too big. Um, now that's a joke. I, I, I'm rocking two and a half terabyte right now internally and another half terabyte externally. So that's not really an issue either. But when you start talking about downloading three, four, five, six AAA titles and they're all gigs and gigs and gigs yeah that could be kind of a clusterfuck yeah it's like it's one of those things where it's like all right i'll download the game and yeah maybe the preloading thing sure if you're willing to leave your your console on overnight because it probably is going to take six to eight hours to download something five six gigs or, or ten gigs you know long and then you got to decide okay i'm running out of space do i delete the old game Sure, I still have access to it because I bought it, but it's going to take another six to eight hours to download that back and and, and back and forth. But 
you know, as opposed to hitting eject and there's the disc and I can take it over to my friend's house or, you know, go sell it back, whatever. But even that, you know, there were talks anyway before the Xbox launched that that's one thing they wanted to cripple. And it wasn't necessarily to hurt the person who wanted to go to their friend's house with their game and play it. But at what you said earlier, to hurt that resale market where, okay, you've got the game. Now what? It, it, it's locked to a certain code to a certain console. What's always concerned me about that was, what if your Xbox breaks and you're going to get another one? How do you prove that association that that game was bought for that console? I would assume that, you know, your credit card receipt, uh, order number, all that stuff, everything has a paper trail. So, yeah, especially if you're getting something for your Xbox One, it's directly through Microsoft. You have your transaction history. That's all the proof you really need. I thought it would happen quicker with the game industry as it has again with music and, and film. Um, I'd be more inclined to want to hold on to a movie, I think, than a game. And I think the reason being is because again, with our phones, with our tablets, you're downloading these apps. You're not walking into Walmart or Best Buy and buying these apps. They're fucking downloads. We're already dealing with that. You have your entertainment, boom. And then yeah, what happens when you start running out of room? Yeah, I guess you got to delete some apps. I would love to see the sales figures on those prepaid cards for things like Facebook and all these different games and, and things that you go into a physical store to see it, you know, Target at the checkout or Best Buy. And all that they're just trying to make it where yeah it's digital content but we still are going to have you know retail space dedicated to it i would love to know you know outside of like itunes gift cards or amazon gift cards um how much does you know am i going to go out and buy a facebook credit um gift card no you're gonna buy those fucking stupid what do they call amiibos instead yeah get the amiibos <laughs> exactly you know i I wanted to say nothing but good things about the new Lego game, but holy fuck if they're not fucks. <laughs> um, they it, it doing the same thing, essentially, with all this other added-on, pay-for content. You're talking like 30 bucks per bundle, and there's like eight bundles already announced, and it, it gets to a point where it's just fucking ridiculous. When I buy a game, I want that to be the game. I don't want to have to go out and buy things four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten times over. And then on top of that, have to store these hunks of plastic that unlock that content. Yeah. So I take it you're probably not playing, uh, like, uh, you know, Disney Infinity or, um, damn collectible game. It has the toys. Oh, I, I know what you're talking about, but no, no none of that. Our no, listeners are that. shouting it at us and we're kids. None of that because my kids would fucking drive me out of house and home. I just, I don't think it's, necessary there, there's some cool dlc shit that comes out for games and and it's some of it's been reasonably priced i've, I've got some character packs for my kids for certain games and stuff and I, I think it's pretty cool um but if you can't continue with the game or whatever until you plunk down more money after you already bought it at retail i'm not sure how i feel about that i remember a time when devs were putting out additional content like as a thank you for buying the game it didn't cost you anything yeah, yeah. And, oh, Mr. Haru in our chat says Skylanders. That's what I was thinking of. Uh, I've even done some background voices in Skylanders before. But he says, Skylanders and Lego Dimensions and Disney Infinity literally have content on the game locked away if you do not buy the figures. Like <laughs> That pisses me off. Again, it's shit that's on the disc. But, oh, did you want to play that? Did you really think you were going to have access to that chapter or whatever? Uh-uh. <laughs> There's a PS4 update. 
and it seems like every other week there's an update for your PlayStation. You log on, and it's like you can't do shit until you update. It's like God damn it. I don't. I don't have a PS4 yet, so I'm not dealing with any of this stuff. But is the new update already buggy? Are people already bitching that things aren't what they're supposed to be? Or For the sake of brevity, there's a very comprehensive list with pictures and videos and screen caps over at Kotaku. And it's a pretty comprehensive list of what's working and what's not working after the firmware update. Firmware uh, 3.0, by the way. It looks pretty. <laughs> and, you know, some of the stuff is glitchy and, and uh, they do have some tips from reddit users on how to work around those and it's always to be expected i think when a patch comes out that you're gonna have some problems there's no insta fix for it but it's a big company they're not gonna rest on the laurels i'm sure they're gonna get this shit humming pretty soon right Uh, another big company that's pumping out successful content all the time is marvel gotta have some marvel news here agent carter gets a new season in 2016 first season eight episodes set in new york season two 10 episodes set in L.A. Uh, So meanwhile, while you're waiting on that, which will probably debut next spring, I'm guessing, uh, you can catch uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 3 currently going. I'm way behind on that. I still got to finish Agent Carter. If you want Agent Carter on Blu-ray, it's an Amazon exclusive. That's pretty wild. Uh, that you can't get some, a mainstream Marvel title by walking into Walmart or Best Buy. There's something going on. They're, they're doing some uh, deals in back rooms, I think. I want to throw this out there real quick. Some edit out a few minutes. I can't believe Facebook found a way to get more annoying. Oh, there's always a way for Facebook to be annoying. You know, it's interesting. I was reading an article just last night, and it said Facebook's making so much money on the fact that you're a user and you post content. But it's to the point that you should be being paid to be on Facebook. Well, that'll never happen. <laughs> That'd be nice, though. But apparently, uh, your your Facebook pro- profile picture is going to be changing. This is rolling out as of today, I believe, in California and in the UK. But what's going on is the, the profile picture is going to be a little bit bigger. And going forward, you're going to have the ability to upload a video as your profile picture. And I'm not sure what the duration is, but that clip will loop over and over and over and over. Yeah. So like a GIF. Pretty much. And uh, I'm not sure if the article mentioned if there was audio attached with that, but holy fuck, if that's the case, you know, people threaten all the time. I'm going to leave Facebook. I'm going to leave Facebook. But if I'm going to have to deal with people's annoying faces, making faces at me, and if I have to hear any sound with that too, yeah. Fuck that. Hey, we had to deal with it on MySpace once you could start pimping out, you know, your page with, with you know, crazy designs. You just, you know, drag and drop some HTML code in there and suddenly, oh, my God, it's the most loud, obnoxious profile ever with auto-playing music and video clips and shit. And it's like, I just wanted to message this person. So Facebook's justifying this by saying that profiles are important. Profiles are visited about 4 billion times each day. So it's kind of in Facebook's best interest to keep it fresh and interesting. And it's also been pushing video content for well over a year. And if profile videos give the user an excuse to keep uploading videos and familiar, familiar, bleh, familiarize themselves with the process, if they haven't done so before, then it may encourage more people to upload more videos to Facebook. Because, of course, Facebook would much prefer you upload to their platform as opposed to services like YouTube. I like what Safeguard says. Worse than an angel fire page with a MIDI embedded in the background. Ah, the good old days. I don't miss any of that. <laughs> Maybe it's okay that we're getting old. 
So are you excited? You're already planning out what you're going to shoot for your profile video? I do have my iPhone 6S Plus. It's It's got a, a better um, selfie cam and a better uh, regular cam, 12 megapixel. And then you got 5 megapixel if you want to do the selfie thing. Uh, shooting 4K video, that's pretty fucking sweet. The processor in there is like, it's the fastest phone out there. You're an Android guy. I'm an iOS guy. I love my toy. That's all I got to say. And this is the phone that turns the front of the screen into the flash when you use the front-facing camera? Right. Yeah, it lights up the screen uh, three times brighter than normal to act as a flash. Yeah. I, I get to give it to them for that. That, that was a smart move. Yeah, and there have been apps for the past few years that do that, but uh, this implementation works the best. So, um, yeah, we don't believe in uh, monopolies. You know, we want Apple pushing Android, Android pushing Apple, and and who wins? The consumer. Everyone's going to get a phone or a media device that uh, works the best for their own personal interest and preferences. So kudos to everybody. And before we cut out tonight, happy uh, third International Podcast Day. That's right. Uh, I became aware of that because Kevin Smith himself uh, said Happy Podcast Day. He's been doing it since the original Smodcast debuted in 2007. Uh, he says uh, he's encouraging people out there who listen to podcasts. You want to do it in your own show? By all means. Or if you want to do more than one show, absolutely do it. Uh, but do it for the love, though. Don't do it for the money because there's no money to be made in podcasting unless, you know, you're Howard Stern or something. I don't know. Definitely, man. We, we, we appreciate the love that you guys give us by uh, seeing our, our download numbers or stream numbers increase every week. We're very, very thankful to all you guys who join us in our live stream or listen after the fact. Uh, please subscribe to the Big Ball Broadcast. You can go to smodcast.com. You can go to iTunes or your favorite podcast, uh, podcast aggregator and uh, add us to your feed so uh, we can be part of your day. We're, we're very honored to have that. Until next time, this is Kyle Bear, And this is Other World Steve. See ya! Special thanks to Will Wilkins and Jason Peer. Music provided by Zero Reynolds. Follow us on Twitter at BB Broadcast and email thebigballbroadcast at gmail.com. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at smodcast.com.